their customers went crazy because this was saving the hedge funds. Then that then the stock the price of all these things started to go down. Within a week, they GameStop lost almost 90% of its value. So this this kind of it, who knows how much higher it could have gone. There would have been a limit, but they kind of cut the rally short. Um, maybe it would have been worth $200 billion. Who knows, right? My guest today is Spencer Jacob. Spencer is an award-winning investing columnist. He writes for and edits the Heard on the Street column at the Wall Street Journal and has previously written for the Financial Times and Dow Jones Newswires. His latest book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. During one crazy week in January 2021, retail traders at Reddit's Wall Street Bets forum had seemingly done the impossible. They had brought some of the biggest, richest players on Wall Street to their knees. I recently sat down with Spencer and we talked about how the meme stock squeeze unfolded and who were the architects and winners of the GameStop rally. Spencer, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. I've been looking forward to it. Hey, thanks for having me, Charles. Okay, so Spencer, the name of the book here, let me get the name of the book out of the way first because uh, there's, I want to talk, there's so much I want to talk to you about. It's The Revolution That Was in GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Boy, oh boy, this sounds like a counterintuitive uh, book title. I read the book and I know uh, you, you, you know from what you speak. So let's get right to it. Last year, at around this time, we went through what was many called a revolution. The small investor taking on Wall Street, uh, squeezing the shorts till they had, they couldn't breathe and almost took down Melvin Capital, which we'll get to in a second. But your book starts off with the revolution that wasn't. This wasn't anything that changed Wall Street at all. So, Spencer, look, man, you are an accomplished guy, heard on the street columnist at the Wall Street Journal. You are totally in touch with what's going on. What is everyone missing? What everyone's missing is that Wall Street is a really big place. Uh, let's think about it this way. Let's think about it in terms of gambling, right? Let's say that uh, that you and a bunch of friends were really good card counters, and you went to Las Vegas, and you figured out how to beat the casino, how to beat the house. And you went to a couple of big casinos and you took them for tens of millions of dollars. Not illegal and not illegal what these people did either, but something that the casinos frown upon. Right. And uh, and you walked away and then, you know, and then people found out about it and it, it was a huge, huge deal uh, that maybe there are 20 casinos on the strip and uh, and two of them would have had a, a really bad week, really bad month, maybe even a really bad year. Let's say you you really took them for a lot of money. Um, what would you have? You'd have a bunch of other people uh, less talented than you showing up, trying to do the same thing and probably failing uh, and uh, and paying a lot of money to the casinos where they played. You'd have all those people spending money on taxis, on hotels, tipping the maid, tipping the bartender, going to restaurants. All the people who were the middlemen in Las Vegas wouldn't have been hurt by what you did. And they would have been helped a lot because a lot more chumps are showing up to play in the casino. And that's a it's not a perfect analogy, but it's a decent analogy for what happened. So you you had this this you know, handful of, of people who did very, very well. You had some thousands of people who did well. And then you had many thousands of people who actually wound up losing money. But the overall effect of it was a very good month on Wall Street because Wall Street is a big place. 
primarily comprised of middlemen, of brokers, of market makers, of other hedge funds that took the right side of this, of investment banks that love it when there's volatility. And if you look up and down Wall Street, with a few exceptions, like Melvin Capital, which we'll get into, uh, people did quite well. So it wasn't, uh, it was a, a black eye for a couple of guys on Wall Street, not for all of Wall Street. And the, as I explained in the book, the this new group of people that got into Wall Street, it was all gravy for Wall Street because these are people who are not usually there. It's people with a lot less money, a lot less experience, a lot younger, people that that 20 years ago never could have afforded to be on Wall Street because the, the technology and the pricing structure was just not right for them. And they came out in droves and they mainly lost money, uh, again, with some exceptions. And Wall Street is loving it. Right. Okay, let's take a step back and let's start from the beginning because what I like what your book does is living through this last year, uh, I remember everyone was setting this up as David versus Goliath, uh, smacking down the hedge funds, uh, HODL, uh, uh, diamond hands, all of that stuff that I was talking about. And um, what people didn't get at the time, and I think your book really captures, is the psychology that was playing on the players, on the media, and how a frenzy started to develop with all the psychological triggers, such as social proof, such as posting, you know, with posting your, your E-Trade account or whatever it was up there. So let's take us back to the point of where, it's, where the book almost starts, where the checks are going out, stimulus checks are going out to people uh, who have young 20-some-odd-year-old people who are getting paid not to work, not to do anything, and we start right from there. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fascinating story because so many things had to happen, and that's that's a very important piece of it. Without the pandemic, this wouldn't have happened. Without the way the government reacted to the pandemic, this wouldn't have happened. And if you want to go back really far, without the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, this wouldn't have happened. So you have a generation uh, mm -hmm. whose formative financial experience is their parents struggling, uh, maybe losing their homes, maybe losing their jobs, certainly losing a chunk of their investment portfolios if they had one. And they were pretty bitter about Wall Street's role in that. And the popular narrative is that Wall Street did it uh, and got away scot-free, actually got off you know, making a lot more money because all the stimulus following the, the financial crisis has increased wealth inequality, has made people in private equity and investment banking, what have you, very wealthy. Obviously, it's not all the same people, and some people did fare poorly, but there were no major prosecutions. There were not a lot of crimes. There weren't people legally raked over the coals for a variety of complicated reasons. And so they, they feel like there's two sets of rules. Then you have, in 2018, you have sports betting legalized in in most states before that it was only possible in vegas not to dwell on the spawn right. las vegas too much in this this story but you had all these these young men mostly uh playing daily fantasy sports all of a sudden on their phone had these apps to gamble and they were really really into it and lots of them got into it and i, I have i have three sons i have two young two of them are young men in this in this cohort they don't do it but their friends all do, or all seemingly all do. And then they started trading stocks because there are these free stock trading apps. They weren't really too interested in stocks yet, here and there, some people were. But then in late 2019, Robinhood, which had gained about half of the new retail brokerage accounts in the US, 
basically everyone just kind of threw in the towel and said, okay, we'll make it free too. And they thought that it would be terrible for business. You're cutting the product of what you sell to zero. How could it not be bad for business? Of course, they had other ways of making money. And what they didn't realize and what they should have understood is that cutting commissions to zero actually led to an explosion in business. Because for this young generation, especially, trading stocks is fun. It's a game. And when you take something that's fun and you make it free, then they rush out and they do it. And and and, and you give them capital to do it. So you had a company well, early, of- early in the early in the pandemic, you gave them capital or they gave themselves right there. They maybe there's somebody who still had their job, right? I don't want to say everyone was spending their stimmy checks, although a lot of people were and the outright stated they were or their, their unemployment benefits or whatever. But a lot of people just, you know, if you're 20, 23 years old, uh, my oldest boy is you you get your money and you you spend it right away. You don't save too much of it. Right. And so all of a sudden you can't go out on Friday night. You can't go out and and go to McDonald's or whatever. And you're just, you're at home because there's a pandemic. Uh, you're bored, your mom and dad's house. Oh, hey, well, there's no, there's no sports to bet on either, except for Korean baseball, right? That was the only yeah. thing on, remember that? Yeah, but you know what's amazing is, is that you, the way I liked, what you, the way you laid it out was, it was, you couldn't write a better script for this to happen. Everything, right. everything lined up, the gamification of trading, the zero commissions, Robin Hood, mm-hmm stimulus checks, uh, the shutdown of any competition for young people's money for action, mm-hmm. uh, gambling, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what'd you expect? Right. Something was going to happen. I, we didn't know how this became, it became this and you'll, you'll share with us how, but, uh, it, it had, it had all the seeds for its own disaster. And you had more than 10 million accounts open during this time. Amazing. That's a huge number of accounts to open. And this is a generation that really is not too interested in finance and investing, right? A lot of young people, you know, even places where I've worked, you talk to some young people are like, oh, you're putting money away in your 401k. No, no, I'll get to it. Like, you you know, it's free money, right? Like the company matches and like it sort of even you tell them that like there, there, there are a lot of young people who just sort of, it's, it's just a boring, dumb thing to them, right? All of a sudden, Investing was this cool, fun thing that everybody was talking about. And then the final ingredient that set the stage for this is, is social media. Oh, sorry, the next final ingredient, because social media, social media today is not like the Yahoo finance message boards that we remember from 25 years ago. Social media is much more potent in terms of getting you to, to do things and holding your attention because of the algorithmic nature of social media. It's because the, the messages, the people you're likely to follow and the messages you're like, likely to see, and especially on Reddit, which was the epicenter of this, are likely to be very reckless, very crazy and reckless because who are you going to pay attention to? Charles, if you go on on Reddit right now, you, I don't know if you have an account, but you can start an account and anybody's post can go viral on Reddit. It's not like being right. on, on Facebook or Twitter where you have to have a follower. And you can say something sober like, uh, I think that this is a really good stock. I put 5% of my whole portfolio into it for ABCD reason, right? And be very cerebral. You are not going to get any attention at all. I'm sorry to tell you, Charles. You, you might get it with our age cohort, but not with that age cohort and not on social media. Then uh, let's say I go on there and I say, hey, I mortgaged my house and I bought deep out of the money call options on this one stock and I'm making a gigantic bet on it. And here's a screenshot of my account. I'm going to get a lot of attention. And now a third person comes to that site and is new to investing and says, well, I'm of the generation that gets its advice on how to do things from social media. They're not even going to see your post. It's not that they're not going to consider your post, which they might not, 
because you're being cerebral and boring, they're not even going to see it because it's not going to get upvoted. So they're only going to see my post and things like that. So the, the whole idea that they get for how to invest, especially on, on Wall Street bets, which was the epicenter of, of this meme stock revolution, uh, were, were pretty reckless, crazy things. So that, that, that sets the stage too. And then the last thing is what was going on in the stock market. The stock market had its most rapid, by far, descent from an all-time high to a bear market ever when the pandemic set in. That was March, and of, then it had March its, of 2020, its, right? Right, exactly. And then, mm -hmm. and then it had its most rapid recovery into a new bull market ever by an order of magnitude. So if you're new to the stock market in March or April 2020, as so many young people were, anything you bought went up. You had to be really unlucky not to, not to buy something that went up. 96% of stocks from that pandemic bottom in the following year rose, which is unprecedented. So, you know, they say success is the, the worst teacher. Well, it was a really bad teacher in this case, because basically everyone felt like they were a genius. And then all, all of a sudden there are all these new financial influencers, finfluencers, they call them on social media, who are telling people what to do. People with like two months or three months of trading experience are out there saying, this is how you make money. This is what I bought. This is what you need to do. And they, they had like 200,000 subscribers. Mm. So, you know, it's, they, and, and the funniest, craziest ones were the ones that took off the most. It wasn't that like, I have a long track record. As a matter of fact, having a short track record was like a, like a real badge of honor. Uh, so this is this guy, Davey Day Trader Portnoy, who said, I've, I've traded one or two stocks in my life ever. And then he set up mm -hmm. a, uh, you know, a Twitter live feed to his over 2 million Twitter followers. And you know how he picked stocks? He'd pick out tiles from a Scrabble bag and people would go out and buy them. Yeah. So, I mean- and, it, and, and, know, and, and he pissed on Warren Buffett. So, you know- Right, exactly. You know, exactly. So, so wow. I'm the captain now. You know, Warren yeah. Buffett, I'm sure he's a good guy, but no. I'm the captain now. <laughs> so, I mean, it was it was kind of funny, but kind of sad. And so that all that set the stage for, for the amazing events of January, 2021. Right, right. Okay, now before we get there, I want to add one more thing. And you touched on it before is there had to be a villain and the right. villain was already there you know you're looking at a cohort that 13 or 14 years ago saw their family struggle during the financial crisis of 08 might have lost their homes uh, uh just really really terrible things during 2006 through 2009 maybe even evicted all of that and mm -hmm. there had to be someone to blame so you had you had the villain you had the means, you had the story, you had everything to make this happen. Yeah. And who's going to be the villain, right? Because there are a lot of people on Wall Street. You're not going to find uh, Angela Mozillo out there to blame. Not that, that that name necessarily would mean anything to a 24-year-old on the internet today. But it was a guy on Wall Street who makes a lot of money, who wears a suit, and especially who sells stocks short. And uh, what stock do they sell short? They're selling stock short in a company and they conflate selling a stock short with wanting to destroy a company, which is not the same thing. And I'll, I can explain, you know, before, I know you have a sophisticated audience, but I can explain the, the nature before, of short selling. Before you do that, yeah. when I was interviewed last year on several uh, podcasts and uh, uh, TV shows or cable shows, they kept saying, short selling destroys companies. I said, no, it doesn't. It does no, not. It doesn't, no. It's, it's like talking apples and oranges. If yeah. you, it's so, uh, but the, the, the reflexive response was short selling 
is anti-American and puts companies out of business and puts people on the unemployment line. And I spent, like you're going to spend in just a few moments, mm -hmm. explaining how the two have nothing to do with each other. And that uh, uh, it, that's what it, it comes out to what I keep seeing, and especially your book points out with all the social proof and, and the uh, influence, is that you needed, you needed a villain that everyone could agree upon, so right. much so that the media picked up on it, that the shorts were the enemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... Um... Anyone listening to this, if you want to see something fun, um, just pause the podcast for a minute, come back and uh, type into Google short sellers are and, and see what comes up. OK, They're, they are reviled and they have been reviled for centuries. So since stock markets have existed, short selling has existed. It happens to be a vital part of, of well-functioning financial markets. Um, but they have been, uh, you know, they've been flogged, they've been jailed, they've been called carrion and vermin and vultures. And, and why? Because they do the opposite of what 99% of us do. We hope we buy a stock and we hope it goes up. They sell a stock and hope it goes down without owning it. Now you really got to pick your spots as a short seller because you are open to unlimited losses. Um, it's the opposite of us. You can make an infinite amount on any stock you buy. You could only lose the money you invested not going to come for your house after you lost all your money on enron they just you just lost them your money right a short seller made if you shorted enron you made a hundred percent because it went to zero uh and that's your max gain you could lose that's a million that's a, your a, maximum a gain percent. right your maximum gain that's is your maximum gain the, if yeah. you short something at ten dollars the best it can do is go to zero you short it a hundred dollars the best you can do to zero so the other side what you're saying is is that the against you the trade can go against you to infinity it, right. there's no limit to how so so it's a asymmetrical bet where you there's a minimum upside a minimum upside and a unlimited downside which makes it such a uh, risky venture which is only best left to people who know what they're doing and who have ample capital yeah do not try this at home kids nope but if you think about short sellers people who are really betting against a stock and this so this happens all the time this the story that I tell in my book is a crazy, unprecedented story, but short squeezes are a, a pretty routine event on Wall Street, just plain vanilla run-of-the-mill short squeezes, which is, you know, it's like analogous to a bunch of people being in a theater and someone drops a cigarette on the carpet and then there's smoke and then they all rush for the exit and there's one exit door and they kind of, a few people get trampled on the way out, okay? This story is like the theater being packed to capacity. There's someone sitting in everybody's lap because there were so many bets against these, these loser companies that were involved. And then not only did the theater catch on fire, but there were some people who like poured gasoline on it and then threw dynamite into the theater and then threw nitroglycerin on top of the dynamite. And they tried to create a, an absolute panic and they, and they did. And so the, the collective action of all these short sellers was, was off the charts. And, and that was, not only did they, do it to make money, but they did it expressly to hurt the short sellers. And they did. I mean, there some people who got, got they, went, they went to destroy. They were out, they were on a mission yeah. to destroy these people. Uh, yeah. And they called people right. out, like Melvin Capital, like Gabe Plotnick, and, uh, you yeah. know. But you, you just back up for one second for our audience. Uh, uh, as you were mentioning, Spencer, the short selling and squeezes where uh, the stock starts to rise and the short sellers have to cover are as old as Wall Street, the most famous one, which was the biggest one until Reddit, was, uh, I think it was the Northern Railroad. 
uh, Northern Pacific Railroad, yep. right? 1901, yep. that, that pitted uh, Jacob Schiff and against uh, J.P. Morgan, syndicate against syndicate. And I think this thing went to, uh, started off at $150 and went up to $1,000. Just people were jumping off out of windows. It was just, uh, um, just there, was not, there were no shares to borrow. There were no shares to cover. And that that era is a fascinating era. I mean, I, I love financial history, um, but that's what when I saw what was about to happen to GameStop, I thought of of that era because 100%. up until the 1930s, this kind of stuff happened. I mean, to more or less extent, there are the guy. That's why people didn't trust the stock market as a place to invest money. It's because it was really just a plaything of people with a lot of money who were trying to mess each other up and doing things that uh, many of, of which would be illegal today. And so when securities laws were passed, for example, it became illegal to, let's say two or three rich guys or big funds see that uh, a fourth guy is heavily short a stock. And they say, hey, let's get him. Let's quietly buy up all the stock and then show up. And then there won't be enough stock for him to cover his position. And then he has to pay us every last penny he has will bankrupt him. You can't, that's a corner and you can't do that anymore. But the law says you can't collude in secret to do it. It doesn't say that you can't get together out in the open on a a social network and do it. And a social network that these Wall Street guys happen not to be paying any attention to because they think it's a joke and full of funny memes. And so they, you go back into this message board and they were planning this thing out and they knew, and there are some sophisticated people there who knew exactly the best way to do it. Um, using options, get, using leverage, using a whole bunch of tricks, not yeah. tricks, but financial instruments in order to maximize the, the, uh, the magnitude of the, um, of the move. Yeah. Which is why it's like card counting, not illegal, but the, you know, it's obviously the casino usually figures it out pretty quickly. Uh, but they did, did not figure this out until it was too late that it was happening. They did not take it seriously. Okay. They didn't see it coming. Some of them, some of them saw it, saw their names mentioned, but just thought it was a joke. Right. And uh, and they weren't laughing. You know, <laughs> at yeah. the end of January 2020, right. they were not laughing. So leading up to that, right? So the the short position. Now, folks, a short position is you take a short position if you feel that the, if you if your analysis tells you the company is worth way less than the stock price. So it's the inverse of a buy. When you buy something at a dollar, you hope it goes to two. When you short something at $2, you hope it goes to a dollar. So the short sellers were, people, investors were short selling one stock, in particular GameStop. Mm-hmm. And which, once again, this, you couldn't write this script any better. I, I remember taking my 25-year-old at midnight to a GameStop 12, 15 years ago because a new game was coming out. And I thought it was the only guy, well, they were all his friends, fathers, they were also all looking at each other. Would you believe this? <laughs> we're staying we're, at midnight. We're driving our kids to GameStop to buy a thing. Yeah, so, I've, Charles, I've, I've done that too. Yeah. I so, mean, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've been there so many times. And, Game- and the GameStop, I just I just was there at a, a book event. It was a bookstore near the local GameStop. GameStops went out of business. It's closed. Yeah. You know, yeah. I have to have to drive a lot farther away now to get to one. GameStop because it's was not a, a very yeah, good business today. It was a bad business. It was it was a business model which time passed, and. Yeah. You had some professional investors who had outstanding track records, did excellent research, showing that GameStop as a viable business doesn't have any hope. The market changed. No one was buying games in a store. It was via online, and it was history. Yet, uh, and, and the fundamentals of the company were just terrible, were just terrible. They were losing money. 
So now you have a stock which resonates with this young cohort, which a lot of them have great memories of, right. and uh, you have a connection there. So you have so many factors going, and you have the stock start out, I don't know the exact date, so you fill me in on this. It's around $3 or so back when, when this starts or? Yeah, it got, during the, the, the worst days of the pandemic, it got down to $2.17. Okay, $2. So if you were short, hovering around $3, $4, you know, during this time though. So, so many people, these short sellers took positions, at, I remember at 10 to $14 or $15, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. Some were really fortunate to get a little higher, but I remember in the $10, $15 uh, range, I don't think any analyst on Wall Street had a buy rating on it, which doesn't say much, but it doesn't matter. But nobody could see any sun sunlight on this, uh, on this, uh, this company. It was... It was blockbuster in 2010. <laughs> it was, it was pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, that's, was, that's a, that's, that's pretty much what it was. Yeah, it, it was here. So now, so these, these, this young cohort, this group, this, this revolution starts when they, how do they find GameStop being so heavily shorted? So a few different things happen. First of all, there's a guy and I, I tell the story through him. So I, I start the story in 2019 and I, you know, the, the way that I try to tell a story, I mean, I think, 90% of people who pick the book up kind of know what happened. And so it's not like it's a surprise, but there's still a lot of suspense in the story because they didn't see the story through this guy. And this guy became central to the whole thing. His name is Keith Gill. Uh, he has a, a nickname, Roaring Kitty, on YouTube. That was a pseudonym. He had another pseudonym. I don't know if there's a PG or an R-rated uh, podcast, but he had a different... Keep PG. Keep it, keep it. PG, PG. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, deep effing value on um, on on Wall Street. That same person. He was not unmasked until uh, until this, you know, this was on the down slope basically. But um, he's an interesting guy, a very very disciplined, smart guy, chartered financial analyst, thirty four years old at the time the the kind of the the story peaks, who decided that GameStop was a good value stock. And he just made an all or nothing bet, not even just using uh, stock, but using options. So he, he basically, he was, if, if he was wrong, he was going to lose all of his money uh, on the stock. And if he was right, he was going to make a lot of money. He was making a really, really concentrated bet. And he started uh, making posts about why he thought it was a good stock. And he was kind of laughed at it. At one point, he had doubled his money and people said, great, dude, sell. He said, no, no, I think... Uh, I wouldn't be maximizing value and that's not the way I think. And a, a couple of other value investors also were kind of sniffing around. Michael Burry, who's uh, one of the characters in, in Michael Lewis's The Big Short, went and bought about 5% of the company. And then people kind of noticed it and it went up for a while. And he wasn't happy. He was unhappy about it. Even though he made about $50,000 on paper when this guy Michael Burry came in, he said, I, I'm not happy because now he made it more expensive for me to buy more. So that's a pretty sound way of thinking, by the way. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the way that long-term winners think. They're not looking at what the market thinks in the short term. They're saying, this is my analysis. I want to buy it as cheaply as possible. Yeah, and well, then I'm going to see what happens. If you want to buy it cheaply as possible, you don't advertise it on board. You do your accumulation well, pretty quietly. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I, he, that, that was his first post, though, to be honest. So his first post was, thanks a lot, Barry, for jacking up my cost basis. But yeah, but then but then he had his position and then he was talking it up and he wasn't a stock tout. Uh, I mean, he was, you know, he was just arguing his position and he had a lot of uh, a lot of valid arguments. I mean, maybe he was right, maybe he was wrong. It's it's to be won't ever know because doesn't matter, right? Uh, you know, my yeah. things things over 
you know, the crazy market situation kind of overtook right. that reality. By the, way, by the way, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Right. But, but he, for 90% of the story, he is ignored. And then as all these young people are rushing into the market and they're buying Tesla, they're buying Nvidia and they're buying hydrogen garbage truck startups that, that have a fake product and they're buying SPACs and, they're buying bankrupt rental car companies and doubling their money. Like a lot of, some smart stuff, some dumb stuff. This is not the kind of thing that they're interested in. So it was a very bad year for short sellers who were betting against, uh, you know, kind of shiny overvalued stocks. But GameStop was pretty much went back to being in the dumps. And suddenly in the, the summer of 2020, you had uh, somebody who was nicknamed the NASDAQ whale make this maneuver. And I don't think this is like was very carefully analyzed by the people on the board, but a few of them did notice who went in and bought billions and billions of dollars for their account of stock options in all kinds of stocks on NASDAQ. And it looked like a great bet because those stocks were going up. And it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you buy a lot of, of a certain type of stock option, then the people who sold you those options, if the stock starts to go up, they have to cover themselves. So they're, they, they're open to an unlimited loss. They sold you the right to buy the stock at a higher price. But if the, the stock actually gets to that price and starts surging, then they're in a big trouble. The little bit of money you paid them for the option isn't going to cover the amount of money they have to, to spend selling you right. the stock at that so, really so high price. So just interject here, so for our audience, this is basically the uh, the um, – the tail wagging the dog. It should, doesn't work that yeah. way. It works the opposite way. So here, this guy went through, totally legal, absolutely legal. Yeah. This, this uh, You'll disclose who that was in a second, and you see how this plays out. But it was a very clever maneuver with someone who's extremely sophisticated and knew how the game was played to, I wouldn't say prop up, but to have the stocks that he wanted to go up to go up. This is the way to do it. That's right. Although, uh, maybe not, right? But it, it worked for a while. And but I remember you, you were reporting at the time, you know, of course. But yeah. I remember everyone yeah. was looking at this and they, they, you know, could easily isolate it down to a handful of people because, yep. uh, you know, who could swing that kind of line in billions of dollars so quickly and that, you know, go ahead, disclose who yeah. it was. And then, and, then it, and then it came at the Financial Times, my old employer, um, uh, unveiled who it was. It was Masayoshi Son, uh, who's the one of the richest men in the world, uh, the uh, CEO of SoftBank, which is a venture capital group. And he was also buying the stocks at the same time. He was buying billions of dollars in stocks. He was basically just, just swinging for the fences in the most aggressive way possible. Um, and, in, and, and at the time, let me just add one piece of color because WeWorks, one of the, one of his companies mm -hmm. that he was investing just wasn't, the, 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 the bloom was off that rose. And, um, oh yeah, so <laughs> that so, was supposed to be worth $47 billion. It whoops. was weeks away from an initial public offering. And then the kind of emperor has no clothes moment. Yep. And it, he, he, his company had lost $9 billion the previous quarter. So he needed to win desperately. And for a while it looked like this was going to be a big win. Uh, it, it did kind of unravel, but it did show people how you can do this. If you have enough money, um, and you purchase, you know, it's called out of the money, short dated call options. So the, the, the call options that cost pennies and can give you, you know, a thousand times your money if well, you got just, it right. This is basically lottery tickets. With yeah, an option, you tickets. usually have, there's a certain amount of time with an option you're paying for. 
hear, and by, I, I didn't know this when I, until I read your book, that at one point, Robin Hood, these things were expiring on Friday at market close. They were giving you till like 11 or 12 o'clock to place a trade or yeah. some. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Who, who, who yeah, thought zero this day one option. <laughs> Yeah, but they were happy. It was all money for them. They don't care. Because the odds right? of this it's, winning. It's, it's, the odds of it, I'm sorry. Yeah, Jim, but, but the thing is, like, that's why you don't deal with people on, on, on Wall Street, or you're very careful at least dealing with people on Wall Street who make money on the front end. Robinhood didn't care. Robinhood sold it to these people. They, they make a lot of money on options. They don't charge you commission, but they make a lot of money because they sell the order. Right. And right. They're they had customers going in, buying options that were, I mean, I think only some people are going to sort of uh, grasp this immediately, but I'll, I'll just tell you, it's a way of guaranteed 100% losing all your money. They would buy an option that was out of the money. So it was like a contract, like if this thing happens, and then they would ex exercise it right away which showed that they had no idea what they were doing and they were still selling options to these people. So they, they, they were selling options to people who had no business buying these sophisticated products. They had to approve them because that's what the rules say, but they were approving people who clearly were, at least some of them were not, they had no business doing this stuff. You know, I want to tell you something, uh, uh, Spencer, that in my newsletter, we have close to a hundred thousand paid subscribers. And I sent out an update. I think it was, uh, early 2020, uh, yeah, 2020. I sent it out in February, March. Uh, I said, stay away from Robinhood. If you want to open an account, open up with a reputable brokerage firm. And I didn't know all the shenanigans that were going on. I didn't know about the order flow. I didn't know how they were doing what they were doing. I did not know the detail that you put out in your book. But what I did tell them to stay away for one reason, the gamification of investing to me was poison. You're now telling people that it's a game just like DraftKings or just like betting on it. became a full contact sport. And investing is that's not the right mindset one should have. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was getting emails from some of my subscribers saying, why they're democratizing, democratizing, democratizing investing. I said, you know, you, you gotta be serious, man. I was on Wall Street for a while. There is no democratization there. It's a one-way street. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. into their own pockets. It's like the casino caring for the better or the gambler. They don't. Well, to be clear, they deny it. Okay, so they they deny gamifying their app, and well, they say the democratizing the, the, finance. So that's the, you know they, they have that's that, that's consistently their their message. We're Baloney, democratizing the finance. We're giving opportunity. You don't want people to have opportunity. The confetti how that do you, used how to drop. How can you be against democratizing finance? But the right? I mean, it's a, it's a strong argument. The right? confetti that dropped when you made money or something—that's not gamification. Uh, you I, know, I think so. I and, think and, I think it's gamification. The that's SEC what they said so. They dropped they dropped that. I'm telling you that they, um, you know, giving their side of the story, they yeah. they deny it. Yeah. And they say they didn't gamify and they're giving people opportunity. No, it's a very colorful, intuitive app. It happens to resemble um, some of these daily fantasy sports apps. Um, and, and then some people think that that's not a coincidence at all, the way that it's designed. Uh, certainly the way that it's designed when you open it up, and what do you see? You see the stocks that have had the top moves. Is that an important piece of information? Do you think what 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 should you show people? Should you show people like the a line chart of the Dow Jones Industrials? That's what I might see if I open up, I don't know, Fidelity, where I have my 401k. That's what they show me. Um, or they show me the top moving stocks or the stocks that most people are talking about or the stocks that most people own. Well, if you do that, then one side effect is you're giving people FOMO. Young people always want to know what other young people are doing, where they're hanging out, what video they're watching, what's viral, right? So you're kind of showing people what's viral. 
And it's been shown that uh, there are a lot of quote unquote crowding events among Robinhood's customers. They will crowd into a, a trade on a stock. And uh, I think the, the way that they display things uh, likely plays a role in those crowding events that they all hear about the same stocks. They hear about them on social media too, not just on Robinhood, but they open up the Robinhood app and what the first thing you see is what's going on. And that's a big reason that people treat it more like Instagram. So their active customers would open the app about seven times a day. Yeah, what There's would no you, reason to check check your account seven times a day. What you put in here, the Halloween candy effect, right? Yeah, exactly. Free money, zero yeah. commissions. You have the Halloween yeah. candy effect. Everybody will take more. And then you had uh, a situation, where, what was the age group of the, of this, uh, of the Robinhood people? It was... Uh, uh, it was, I think, 20-something years old, and the average account size was $241. Or is it yeah, the median account size. Median, median account, account size. size. Yeah, but yeah, yeah exactly. And they, they, they had a lot of young customers. Um, I think the median customer was uh, was more like 31, so on the younger side, but definitely it skews very young. $241 was a... Can you imagine in uh, in 1985 showing up at a stockbroker and saying, I have $241. I'd like to open up an account. They'd be like, "You're gonna, you're gonna lose a fourth of well, your account no, but in the first lose, trade, and lose. you're gonna lose another fourth of it when you sell your stock." Mutual like, funds at the time. About? I remember mutual funds at the time. Uh, it used to be ten thousand dollar minimums, and then I remember Dreyfus was one of the first to lower to twenty five of uh, five thousand, and I remember Dreyfus was twenty five hundred dollars, which was considered a bargain. But it yeah. was a two hundred forty one dollars. It, it's it's it's. It, well, let me be clear, okay? So I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that being able to interact more cheaply with Wall Street, I think being able to get on the financial ladder as a young person is not a bad thing, you know? But you, know, but, but you, you know can make things too easy, right? You can, you, can, yeah. you can take away the cost of something and then you could put up some guardrails too. That's like and say, there are no guardrails put up because it's a, it's a good business to you know, bring these young Spencer, people into the market. Like, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like having a... Uh, uh, CPR course uh, for former alcohol for alcoholics in recovery at a liquor store. Well, you, there's redeeming factors there. Yeah, yeah. you know CPR. It's it's it, the, everything was set up in order to to promote. Rec, I, I don't want to say reckless. Let me rephrase to promote rampant speculation that was done impulsively, and all the bells and whistles were there to promote that and keep it going. And also, when you sign up for a Robinhood account, you can get an instant account, that's the default, or you can downgrade to a cash account. What's the difference? The difference is that if you have an instant account, let's say you, your friends, uh, I don't know, at college is like, dude, I've got a Robinhood account. If you open an account, I'll get a free share of stock and you'll get a free share of stock. It's a mystery stock, so it's like a lottery ticket. Okay, first of all, that's, that's gamified in my opinion, is getting that mystery free share of stock because it could be a really valuable stock every once in a while. Then um, you open up your account. Well, hey, you know what? If, if you open up a Schwab or a Fidelity account right now, you can't trade right away because you say, okay, okay I'm transferring money from my bank account. They still want to have the money before you can trade. But Robinhood would allow you to trade right away. They're like, okay, you're good for the money. It's coming in a few days. Why don't you trade right away? So if you had some impulsive idea, if your friend was like, dude, you should open up a Robinhood account and you should buy some GameStop or buy some Nikola or buy some Tesla, you didn't have to wait. And if you only had enough to buy a fourth of a share of Tesla, that was okay too, because you could buy a fractional share and pay zero commission. 
So you could you could do almost anything and gain exposure to almost anything without any cooling off period. And, and I believe that that was important too, that kind of that you could be completely impulsive going from somebody telling you about an account to filling out the stuff to actually being able to make your first trade before your money actually has reached the account through the wires of the banking system. How much do they front you? If, if say I opened this account for $10,000, they wouldn't give me $10,000 of credit, would they? I think it's, uh, I think that there are, are limits uh, to that, but most of the accounts, like I said, the, the median account was $241, but the fact that they would front you the money, uh, now that's not margin. Margin is a different thing. Uh, and margin has certain requirements so they'd have to approve you for margin. Although they, they did uh, provide margin to a lot of their, their customers. And they had something called Robinhood Gold, where you would get uh, the first thousand dollars of margin borrowing for free if you paid for Robinhood Gold, which was five dollars a month. So they 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 did uh, get a lot of their customers to sign up for margin. They also had a, a, a unusually large percentage of their customers default on margin loans compared to other brokers. It was a cost of doing business, so all the money that they were making from selling. But all right, let's move yeah. let's move on from there. So you have this situation. Let's get back to here where we where the story really goes to. Uh, in January. So you have this GameStop, which is a $3 stock going to zero on a quick ride to zero. Now starts getting pumped up for a whole bunch of reasons that you mm -hmm. just mentioned. And now the frenzy starts to take place in December, right? December time or so? Yeah. From between September and December, let's say September is when Ryan Cohen shows up. Ryan Cohen is a very clever young guy. Uh, who was the founder of Chewy.com. Yeah, well, I'm a customer. Uh, the, I love him. We, uh, yeah, I, I love day. him. I love him too. I'm Great. a very loyal customer we, of we, Chewy. We used to place yeah. orders. Uh, I used to place an order uh, before they were taken, bought over. But uh, I used to place an order at 11 o'clock on, let's say, Monday. And by Tuesday at noon, I'd have two 50-pound bags of dog food. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's I'm I'm a very happy customer. I'm I'm happy to pay a little bit more too yeah. if I have to. Um because they're very good. He's no longer affiliated with Chewy, right. but he he founded it and he's a he's a very smart businessman and he showed up uh with 9.9% of GameStop and he's a young cyber savvy guy. He knows about retailing and so all of a sudden the hopes really really rose. And and legitimately, right? He he shows up. I mean, you're not going to buy 10% of this company for no reason. He must see something and he knows about e-commerce. And so maybe he's going to come in and transform this company. He started agitating for change. Uh, later on in January, he got on the board, which kicked off another frenzy in the stock. And then people discovered uh, Keith Gill. They didn't know him as Keith Gill yet. And they saw that as back, back early as, as the summer of 2019, he was touting the stock and he had been very right. And he kind of became a mascot of Wall Street bets. People would constantly go back and look at his posts and see what he was saying and watch his videos. And Keith Gill, I think, um, I, I think that he got a bit spooked because he was actually a financial advisor technically and was not supposed to be doing this. And so he got more quiet where he said less things. He said fewer things explicitly and just started posting memes. I don't think that to be clear that he did anything wrong or illegal, but uh, I think he was aware of his his legal responsibilities. And and so, you know, he he certainly didn't, didn't give away who he was or what he did for a living. And he started just, you know, kind of getting very interested in the fact that now there was the possibility of a short squeeze because you had these hedge funds that were extremely short. And so they were starting to lose money. And Ryan Cohen was there and maybe Ryan Cohen was going to do something else. And so there was the possibility 
that they were talking about openly was short squeeze. And then people started talking about make, doing a gamma squeeze, which was this, this thing that the, the NASDAQ whale had done, Masayoshi Sun, buying all these options to manipulate the price of the stock higher because all the options dealers would then have to, as the price rose, it would be like a virtuous cycle where they'd have to buy the stock. And they were talking about it openly. And the guys at these hedge funds should have seen the writing on the wall. They should have, should have gotten out and they did not generally. I mean, that was their chance to, to just go and do something else. Okay, and but, but they, they don't. just didn't take it seriously. They don't. They and didn't. the stock starts to rise and not rise, but actually go into the stratosphere. Walk us through that. Starts to go up in in December, and GameStop continues to report very bad numbers. So its business is going horribly. And the stock's going January, up. The stock's going but up. But the stock's going up. The the, right. the the business is going down a lot worse than expected. The stock is going up in the opposite direction. Then in January they reported their Christmas sales, awful. You know, that doesn't matter anymore because Ryan Cohen shows up and he says, I, "I'm gonna I'm." going to be on the board and i'm putting these two other people who were with me at chewy.com on the board and uh and you people other people who are on the board several of you please pack your bags and leave and they agreed and that just set off the storm and then the stock was going up 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 through mid-january then you had now gabe plotkin of melvin capital was the one really losing a lot of money and another short seller shows up who was known to the people on the board, whose name is Andrew Left. And he's an activist short seller, a very brash, vocal short seller, who shows up and on Twitter on January 19th, he says, listen, you guys uh, are the patsies at this poker game. I know all about short selling and you don't. And I'm telling you why the stock is going a lot lower. And then they had a, a, a different enemy who was just, you know, sticking it in their face. And they- They, they had a public lynching. This, they had just... a public lynching. They, they hacked his accounts. They terrorized him on social media and in, in person and sent him menacing messages and did all this crazy stuff, which is horrible to do to anybody, no matter what you think of them in, in business, right? And and he, he couldn't do his presentation because his social media accounts had all been hacked. And then they had a, all of a sudden they had a really identifiable enemy. They had Melvin uh, or Gabe Plotkin and Melvin Capital. And then they had this guy who was to them it was a lot worse and he had shorted some stocks that they liked on them on the uh wall street bets board already and made some money and, and and forced them into some losses through some of his research and so he just got bulldozed and run over he got out with a 100 loss and, on and, these and positions. What, also promised never to no, he didn't promise but he basically said i'm not going to be public about these anymore was that something that he yeah did yeah or? he said i'm going to stop producing short research and this guy had taken <laughs> on some mean mean guys he, he had taken on actual criminals he had faced criminal prosecution in, yeah, Hong in, Hong at, Hong at Hong one Hong. point abroad, right? And so, yeah, yeah, and so he he was, it's not like he it was his first rodeo and he was just shaken, uh, you know, and I, I spoke with him different times throughout this, this period and, um, you know, he was uncharacteristically shaken. You know, he's, he's, not, uh, he's not a wimp, let's put it that way. And he was just really, um, you know, he, he, he didn't know what, what to do and what to say. And he, he came, he came, published a couple of videos they're still on youtube his name of his company is citron research if you're going to watch them very conciliatory to this group not that they cared and yeah he, he got run over gabe plotkin got run over gabe plotkin's fund lost almost seven billion dollars in a matter of days yeah, well, let's let's on, let's put give it a little color gabe plotkin was a really really successful he's a smart guy uh, he worked for uh, uh steve uh, 
uh, Steve S Cohen. Yes, yeah. uh, uh, was SAC. 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 Which I forgot the new name change. What was the name now they call them? It's point seventy two now, but it was SAC. SAC left had him back him. Cohen backed him for a lot of money, and uh, this was a smart guy. He knew what he was doing, and he yeah. made one year, I think, eight hundred million dollars. He was a uh, he was doing really personally, well. personally, personally, yeah. yeah, his take. Yeah. So when he was shorting this, and like you said, his people were not looking, or he wasn't looking at this. This was a freight train coming right at his face, and he was short. And I remember, uh, I think the Wall Street Journal kept publishing uh, how this guy was short, and it was costing him. Huge, huge, huge amounts of money until he had it not bailed out, but got a cash infusion. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. said, "Oh, it wasn't a bailout." So yeah, he got a cash infusion. <laughs> I guess it's not a bailout. I don't know what you call Whatever it. Whatever you want to call 2. it. Of two point seven five billion dollars, right. and the two people who who contributed that cash uh, were um, were his old boss, Steve Cohen. Uh, most of it came from a man named Ken Griffin, who also plays a central role in the story. Ken Griffin runs one of the biggest, most successful hedge funds in the world, but he also runs a company that's called Citadel. He also uh, is the major shareholder in a firm called Citadel Securities, separate firm uh, that was the main firm that processed the trades of Robinhood, mm -hmm. that uh, that paid it for its trades. There are others, but it was the biggest source of, uh, of revenue for Robinhood buying its trades and and like in a it's not a stock market it's not a bank but it's a it's a market maker it's a wholesaler it processes the trades using very sophisticated fast computers and then fills the trades it, it you know it's not it pays a fee. like cheating or lying it oh. you know that's that's its business and that's what it does and it actually gives pretty good execution and pretty good prices to these retail traders but it it its business allows robin hood's business to exist Robert Hood's business could not exist if you didn't have Citadel. If you didn't have companies like that. Like yeah. Citadel, buying buying the order flow, right? Right, they yeah. They couldn't do that. Okay, so now the stock, and this is, now let's take us to January. The stock price goes up. I remember one day it just doubled, uh, 100 to yeah. 200. So I don't, it went up to original, how high was it, 450? $483 is where it peaked, yeah. So you 483. Took, right. What was the market cap? GameStop had a market cap at the height of what? How much was that worth? Oh gosh, I think it was worth uh it went from being worth um two hundred and thirty million dollars to twenty-four billion, right? Yeah, Amazing. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, so it was maybe briefly even more than that, but I think it's closing market value is about twenty-four billion. So it was worth a lot for a business that had not made money in years. Yeah, close putting to, it mildly, close to uh, thirty-five billion because now it's a hundred, hundred two dollars a share. That's uh, eight, well, it has more. There are more shares now, oh, so, uh, okay, so it's eight, it issued more shares. Eight billion. So I think I, I think on a closing basis, maybe twenty-four was the twenty-four was the peak. But I could be wrong. I, I can look back. Who knows? But, uh, it in, intraday, <laughs> intraday, it might have been more. It was worth a lot. It was, um, four eighty-three is what it hit intraday, and it was. Yeah, I mean, the business is not worth that much, obviously, but it's, you know, stock price is just, you know, it is what it is. The market's always right. And it looked like, and and the, the hedge funds that were initially there got out with severe losses. New hedge funds came in. Then Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, who was revered by the same cohort, by this young Gen Z and millennial cohort, came out on Twitter to his Twitter followers with one tweet at 4.08 p.m. that Tuesday, January 26th, GameStonk. Not GameStop, GameStonk, because a stonk is a company that, that you know, you just goes up anyway. And that set off a new explosion. 
and then he had a link to Wall Street Bets. He knew exactly what he was doing in case you couldn't figure out what he was talking about. And that set off a new conflagration. And then Robinhood was having a great week until it was having possibly its worst week ever because Robinhood could not handle the volume. Because brokers have a broker, you think that something happens instantly. You look at your brokerage account and you're like, I bought the stock, money went out of my account, and the stock's in my account. Well, no, the stock's not in your account yet. And the money went out of your account, but it's going to take a couple of days to get to whoever, right? Uh, whoever bought it and vice versa. And you, know, you don't see that, but that plumbing of the system goes through a clearinghouse. And the clearinghouse is like the broker's broker. Just make sure everyone gets paid and gets their stock. And then if you come up short as a broker, the clearinghouse has a problem. Uh, so it wants to make sure that you have enough money on deposit so that in case you're not good for the money. And it went to Robinhood. Robinhood you know, was still a pretty small company. And it said, uh, guys, you need to come up with $3 billion in the next three hours before the market opens. Otherwise, you're shut down. And there was no way, even today, with the kinds of money being thrown around, there was no way they could get $3 billion in three hours in the middle of the night. So um, they went back to the clearinghouse and they said, listen, if we stop our clients buying these, these stocks, and that's why it's, you, you identified this risk, because they're buying this handful of stocks like GameStop, AMC Theaters, BlackBerry, Bed Bath & Beyond, Nokia, you know, all these sort of these that became the meme stocks. If we stop people from buying anymore, then what, what do we owe you? And so then you owe us $700 million in change. And they could just about do that. Just. They called in all their bank lines and they did it. Let me just point out one thing uh, for our listeners. The reason, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the clearinghouse did it on these specific stocks is because the swings in price were so great that in order to mitigate their risk, they were asking for more money down per trade. Right? Yeah, so that's exactly. what said. The swings were so crazy and so many other clients owned it because Robinhood was the main broker of all these people. Right. And people were opening accounts. Think about it, somebody may have opened an account on that Monday and bought the stock that day. Monday, and their money didn't yeah. even arrive until Wednesday Amazing. or they bought it on Wednesday and it wouldn't arrive until Friday. So the, the money was not there at Robinhood yet or they were using margin borrowing or they were doing other things. And so it, it, there was a huge amount of, of risk being taken by its customers, but ultimately it was Robinhood's risk because its right. customers might not might not have very much money, right? Right. If you're like a 24 year old kid, that's all your money. They can't, you know, they they could come after you for more money, but you're like, I don't, Dude, have. I don't have any money, <laughs> right. right? So that's not that's not good enough for the clearinghouse. Right. And so the clearinghouse, um, you know, said, okay, seven hundred something million dollars, that's fine if you don't allow your clients to buy any more of these stocks. And they went crazy and they didn't explain. And think about Robinhood was in a difficult position here, right? Because you can't really signal to the market if you're a financial institution, the like we're almost out of money, right? That's, you know, that's not a, that's not a very smart thing to say when you have lenders and you have all kinds of counterparties. And so they came up with a very technical mumbo jumbo answer to their customers. Their customers went crazy because this was saving the hedge funds. Then that then the stock, the price of all these things started to go down. Within a week, they GameStop lost almost 90% of its value. So this this kind of it, who knows how much higher it could have gone. There would have been a limit, but they kind of cut the rally short. Um, maybe it would have been worth $200 billion. Who knows, right? There's no well, there's the, no rational the, limit to what something could be worth. The rational limit, it had all of the makings of of 
a disaster of, of enormous magnitude could have wiped out zillions of people uh, who yeah. were on the hook for this. Nobody really knew. So what looked like such a, um, uh, it wasn't an innocent move. It was a planned move by the clearinghouse, the clearinghouse to stop this. It was a runaway train. It, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, so, so that broke the fever. That's when the fever broke. And uh, I believe hedge funds who were short were able to get out somewheres around there or were starting to get out there. Well, it depends when some still lost money, but yeah. they were able to get out, you know, at a lower price. So it, it kind of did, did bail out those hedge funds. But that's not why it was done. And, and to this day, there are conspiracy theories. Just t yesterday or two days ago, there's some warehouse burnt down near Chicago. Like, oh, that's where they kept the records of so-and-so. See, it's all a conspiracy. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens. Like, it came out in some investigations that people from Robinhood were talking to people from Citadel Securities. Well, yeah. I, it should be. <laughs> I, think, I think they were. I mean, they were the, the, the main source of revenue. I'm not surprised they were talking. I mean... They weren't saying, hey, stop trading. I mean, if, if Robinhood had not had this problem, they would have loved to keep on going. If Citadel Securities would have loved to keep on going because they were making a lot of money on processing all these trades. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't a bad thing for them. It was just too much of a good thing. And 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 that's that's the simple reason why it stopped. But immediately people are outraged because it, it does look awfully suspicious and it looked like they were bailing out the hedge funds. And so you had... You know, Ted Cruz, you had AOC, you had Donald Trump Jr., oh, well, you, heard these you had people Josh Hawley. Everyone was piling on and late night talk show hosts were piling on and people misunderstood what was going on. But yeah. they were raking Robin Hood over the coals. And then congressional hearings were called that day for three weeks hence, which yeah, is. It, it, when you heard these people talk, you realize they had no idea how the financial system works. And it was really grand, not grandstanding, but they were just basically, it was grandstanding. They were just getting out there. Uh, just shooting the breeze on things I had no idea. It wasn't conspiracy theories. It wasn't anything. And I just saw the other day um, uh, when we're filming this, when we're broadcasting, when we're recording this, the FBI seized computers of short seller Andrew Left of Citron Research over uh, GameStop and what happened back in January 2021. Yeah, I mean, who knows? You know, maybe there is something something else there that they they saw. I can't I can't say why the FBI would do that, but. Yeah, they they were looking for um, for bad guys because you always want to find a bad guy, and they might not be looking in the right place. Maybe they're looking in the right place with him. Maybe there's something else going on there. I have no idea. That's above my pay grade. But uh, but yeah, but they were they called these hearings and they called out the short sellers that are destroying the American dream of mom and pop, which is exactly backwards because short sellers have been kicked to the curb. And listen, the short sellers are are not angels, but they exist for a reason. They it. The, the absence of short sellers is uh, is bad for mom and pop, uh, which is something that is just, it, it, I think so, for some politicians it's difficult to understand. And for some politicians, it's not difficult to understand, but they don't want to understand it. You know, they, it's not you, a popular, you, it's not popular. It's not a popular say, stance. Yeah. Right? You know, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for the short sellers, they'd still be an Enron. They'd still be WorldCom. Right. They'd yeah. still, you know, the, the short sellers are like the, Hyenas of the Serengeti, you need them. You know, they're the scavengers. I don't want to compare them all to that, but I'm just giving... Yeah, well, I you, you can call them hyenas, right. but you still... What you didn't doing, have hyenas, you'd have a problem. You'd right, have a which, lot of exactly, horses, right? Right, you have all... They, they are important for the ecosystem because if, if a company is not run by a bunch of charlatans, if Apple was subject to a short rate of short sellers, who cares? It doesn't matter. They would right. go right through it because they're not going out of business and they're not cheating. But the frauds that are being exposed and the, 
the charlatans who are pumping up stocks. That's the purpose of the short sellers. The short sellers can't right. and, and just making prices right because you got to have right. somebody who bets against the price. You can't just have and we're all buying in the you one can have two, You can have like, I'll buy the stock or I won't buy the stock. You have to have somebody out there saying, not only will I not buy the stock, but I'm going to sell the stock because I think it's too high. Right. You know, you you need somebody making that bet for prices to be more correct. You need someone uh, on the other side of that trade. If you don't have yeah, someone on the other side of the trade, you're dead. So, yeah, you know, uh, Spencer, there's so much that I could speak to you about for the next couple hours on this book. It's, it's just absolutely great. It gives you a, which I lived through this and I'm in the business and I'm reading... Uh, and I'm living through it, and I'm reading this. There were so many intricate things you brought up uh, about the order flow, the payments, all the details that I had no idea about, which makes it even scarier, which makes uh, – you, you know, they don't re- – well, I'm just going to – I'm not editorial. Well, I am editorializing here. If it wasn't for the breaking the fever here, a lot of young people, the ones who were actually trying to go against Wall Street, would have been killed. Wall Street bailed them out. You know, the irony of it. Yeah, kind of. Is, yeah, it wasn't doing them a favor either. But yeah, it did. That's, well, that's well, the thing. The, They're so angry that the trading was stopped, but it, they would have lost more. You know, it's like a kid sitting there eating so much sugar and, you know, you hate your parents for it. But thank God you're going to have teeth one day <laughs> because of that. <laughs> and, 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 right. and, you know, it, 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 it was a thing. But uh, it, it just, you know, one, one final close on this. What do you think Wall Street learned from this revolution? And I use that term lightly. And what did the retail trade learn? I think Wall Street's always, they're paid to learn. Uh, they learned how to arm themselves against this. They learned to take social media seriously and this young group of investors seriously. So they're, they're much better prepared. About 85% of hedge funds today have uh, either pay for a service or have a service themselves or they troll through social media. They read it faster than a human can read it and they're, they're prepared. What did retail learn? Um, I, I think nothing good because I think that this new generation, um, some of them learned uh, that Wall Street's a crooked place, but um, they're bitter uh, about Wall Street. So I, I think that hopefully some of them are going to say like, you know what, I lost some money on this or I made a little bit of money, but this is not really a sustainable way to invest. I have an account now. I'm going to just you know buy some conservative things and hold them and and they have their foot on the ladder. I but think, I think that's going to be a small minority. I think most of them are going to say, Wall Street's crooked. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I'm going to keep my money in I don't no, know, NFTs I, or no, whatever. I'm going right? to go to Bitcoin. I'm going to go to Bitcoin. It's fueling Bitcoin's uh, um, rise. Right. So that, just that, that, that's a shame because you you kind of you need to engage with, you don't need to, but you should engage with Wall Street. You should invest. You should build up a nest egg. You should do it in a slow, methodical, conservative way, setbacks and all. And, um, you know, and too few young, there's a retirement crisis in this country and there's a retirement crisis for people who are close to retirement, but there's also a retirement crisis for people who are 40 years away from retirement who have no plan for doing it. And so if you don't get on that on that ladder, then you're doing yourself a disservice. And I think that uh, a lot of young people, I, I think are gonna just, just take such a dim view of Wall Street and see it as a place full of crooks. And of course there are crooks, unfortunately, but I mean, Generally, you know, there's there are good cheap ways to to invest where you pay very little money to Wall Street and engage with it very little, and you can do very well. And uh, and there, a lot of them are going to miss that. They're going to take a detour off of that road. Well, you know, that's the price of experience. Right? That's the price they're going to have to pay. You know, it doesn't come cheap. This is the tuition. Uh, Jack yeah. Bogle's Vanguard's out there. Uh, it beats ninety five percent of all money managers over fifteen year period by a simple index fund would cost you nothing. 
and you know put a little money away each month and that's it but who wants to get rich slowly when you can get rich overnight unfortunately it's it's a tough sell that's it you know what's it it, just the last word on this and i'm going to give it to you is that uh you know, the more things change, the more they remain the same. There's nothing new here. It's really nothing new. In yeah, that's <laughs> that's the thing. There were some new things. I mean, it's I, I hate to say it's the same old story because there's some very unique twists to the story. And I, I tried to tell it in an entertaining way, too. And there's definitely some some unique twists. But, of course, yeah, it's the same old story of Wall Street, you know, winning and the little guy losing. And um, it doesn't have to be that way because the technologies that I talk about also uh, – are of great benefit to the little guy, yep. like those index funds. Those index funds didn't exist 40 years ago. And then, you couldn't and, invest and, and, for 0.03%. And, and that's, that's the same That's the same thing that makes $0 commissions possible. That's right. The technology brought the cost down for the average person to invest better than a institution could have 20 years ago. Right. That's amazing. Folks, the name of the book is The Revolution That Wasn't GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors by Heard on the Street columnist at the Wall Street Journal, Spencer Jacob. Definitely, this is it should be on your, uh, on your uh, reading list this year because there are so many great lessons on investing that he weaves throughout the book. I'm talking as if you're a third person here, but uh, I love all of the things about the social proof, influence, uh, and how you build the stage because there there's so many great lessons here. I mean, this, this is a book that you should uh, definitely get because uh, – there's it's, it's, it, history doesn't repeat itself at it rhymes and this was definitely a this rhyme like so many other catastrophes that i've seen <laughs> so uh spencer all the power to you fantastic how the, the book is going uh, went on sale on february first february, february 1st, yeah. 1st and uh yeah. so hopefully uh by the time you guys get this there's a zillion five-star ratings and i'm sure a lot of uh these people are going to flame you and call you the devil incarnate so uh uh, have you been any any attacks or anything personally against you uh, from this book? Oh yeah, 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 for sure, yeah. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it it it, it, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, like you know, kind of the one star reviews and things like that. Some of them are just so obviously malicious that I mean, Amazon will be like, if something just insulting, I didn't read the book, but this guy is a clown. So you know, they'll they'll remove that. I mean, but yeah, it's what it is what it is. I mean, I think people will see through that. Um, and, uh, listen, if somebody reads this and they thought it was just okay, then leave a just okay review, leave an honest, sincere review. I mean, if you read the book and, uh, but if you loved it, then don't be shy about that either, of course, um, because that, that all matters to, um, you know, to an author who wants to have another book, right? I mean, you know, how, how the last book did. And so, um, yeah, so I, Charles, I really appreciate the kind words about the book. I'm so glad you liked it. Thank you for having me. Oh, great, man. All the power to you and just keep coming out with great stuff. And and I want to tell you, I was telling you on the phone when we first spoke, I've been getting the Wall Street Journal for close to 30, no, well, it's going to be 40 years. 19, yeah, wow. 40 years. And uh, uh, the beginning of next year will be 40 years. May May 2023, that's when I first started uh, as a floor trader in 1983. I got started getting the Wall Street Journal. I don't think there have been many days in my life that I have missed it. And the first thing I do is I turn now to the um, to the um, editorials in section one, and which I'm so glad to hear is the heard on the street is the second thing I turn to. I think you do great stuff on the back page, really good stuff for investors. Thank you. Thanks. I Super. appreciate it. All right, uh, Spencer. Thanks so much for your time, in. I greatly appreciate it. We have to have you on again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. 
If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.